Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was born in Portland, Maine in 1807. He was the direct descendant of pilgrims, and his grandfather had been a general in the Revolutionary War as well as a congressman. And Longfellow loved America. He was a poet, and some of his very earliest poems as a child talked about his great love for America. By any measure, Longfellow had a very privileged life. He went to the very best schools as a child. He went to Bowdoin College, uh, which his grandfather had actually founded. And he became uh, a professor at Harvard and published works of poetry that drew international praise. And he's remembered as one of America's great poets and authors and scholars. And yet his life also had tremendous difficult times. Early in his career as a professor of modern language, he was asked to travel to Europe for three years to study language, to learn French, Spanish, and Italian, which he did. And then he also threw in Portuguese and German, because why not? You know, way smarter than me. Mostly without any formal training. But while he was abroad in Europe, he got the news that his favorite sister, uh, Elizabeth, had passed away suddenly at the age of 20 from tuberculosis. And so here's this young man alone in Europe, a continent away, an ocean away from his friends and family as he grieved. After three years of study and travel throughout Europe, he returned to the U.S. and on September 14, 1831, married his childhood friend, a young woman named Mary Potter. And he worked as a professor and a writer. His work, once again, called him to go to Europe because he hadn't learned enough languages yet. So he went there. And he studied Dutch, Danish, Swedish, Finnish, and Icelandic. (laughs) This guy was good at languages, I'm just saying, gift of tongues. And while he and his wife were in Europe, his young wife, Mary, became pregnant, uh, which was joyous, obviously. But six months into the pregnancy, she had a miscarriage. And sadly, due to complications, uh, both the child passed away as well as Longfellow's young wife uh, at the age of 22. And so once again... Longfellow is in Europe, alone, and an ocean away from the friends and family, and he was alone to grieve. During that time, he wrote in his journal, One thought occupies me night and day. She is dead, she is dead. All day I am weary and sad. Longfellow returned to the United States, and he began his work teaching at Harvard, all the while mourning the death of his child and his wife. But while he was there he met a woman, a woman named Fanny Appleton. And he was a big fan of Fanny Appleton. She was not a huge fan of him, however. And it took him seven years of trying to woo her. He said, victory hangs doubtful. The lady says she shall not, and I say she shall. (laughs) It is not pride, but the madness of passion. I love the language of this era. We just don't talk that way. I say she shall. Or if we do, yeah, it's bad news. Anyway, but after seven long years of wooing her, she uh, relented, and they were married in 1843. And and Longfellow absolutely loved Fanny. He wrote so many poems, but of all the poems he wrote, he wrote one love poem ever, and it was about Fanny. He wrote these words, Oh, my beloved, my sweet Hesperus, my morning and my evening star of love. His life, which had seemed to have come apart in that trip to Europe when he lost his wife, suddenly had hope, suddenly had restoration, suddenly was what he dreamed It would be. And together he and Fanny had six children, and life couldn't have been happier. I mean, he lived in a beautiful home with a beautiful wife and six beautiful children, and the career of his dreams, everything was good. But then after 18 happy years, in 1861, tragedy again struck Longfellow in his home. 
Longfellow was napping one hot July afternoon, and as he slept, his wife Fanny sat at her desk next to his bed, and she was working on a project. She was taking locks of hair that she had cut from the kid's hair, and she was sealing them in envelopes using hot wax. And it's not clear what happened, but somehow as she was working with the candles and the wax, her dress caught fire. And Longfellow, wow, and Longfellow awoke to see his wife engulfed in flames. And he tried, he used a rug, and he tried to put the flames out, and he used his own body, but it was too late. She was burned so severely that she didn't recover. She died the next morning. In fact, Longfellow himself was so badly burned that he couldn't even attend her funeral. In fact, he was so burned that he grew a beard to hide the scarring on his face, a beard that he then wore for the rest of his life, a beard that has become sort of an icon of how we picture him when we see him today. Once again, Longfellow was plunged into darkness. His life, which had become everything he dreamed, had come apart. And now here he was, a widower and father to six children. He again fell into depression and despair, into chemical abuse and addiction. He wrote during that time that he thought he might go insane from the grief. And meanwhile, that same year, 1861, our nation, the nation that he loved so much, was plunged into what is still the bloodiest of American wars, the American Civil War. He watched this country that he loved, that his, that his descend, uh, ancestors had been a part of founding, and he watched as it was being torn apart from the inside. His oldest son, Charles, who was 16 at the time, implored his father to let him go and to join Lincoln's army, the Union army, to engage in the fight, but Longfellow refused to allow him. He had already lost so much. He had lost his two wives and an unborn child, and he couldn't bear the thought of losing his son as well. But then in 1863, Longfellow received a letter from that very son who was now 18, informing him that in the night, Charles had slipped away and had boarded a train and was on his way to Washington where he was going to enlist against his father's wishes and without his father's blessing. He wrote these words, I've tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your leave, but I cannot any longer. I feel it to be my first duty to do what I can for my country and would willingly lay down my life for it if it would be any good. Again, Longfellow's life felt like it was just thrown into turmoil. His firstborn son from his beloved wife, Fanny, had gone against his wishes and now was embroiled in this ugly, brutal war that had already claimed so many young lives. But then on December 1st of that same year, 1863, he received another letter, this one letting him know that his son Charles had been gravely wounded in a battle. And so Longfellow took a train and immediately went to Washington where the doctor said it didn't look good. His son probably wouldn't survive, and if he did, he'd probably be paralyzed for life. And so Longfellow spent that long December sitting at his bed's his son's bedside, caring for him. And then on December 25th, 1863, Longfellow at the age of 57, facing the possibility of losing his son, having already lost so much, with a future that seemed so uncertain, Longfellow decided to take a walk. And as he walked on that crisp December morning, he heard a sound. Church bells ringing. Church bells ringing, inviting people to come to this gathering, to worship, to sing these songs that spoke of joy and love and peace in a world that knew no peace, in a world that knew no joy, in a world where love had died so many times for Longfellow. And that sound of these bells ringing and calling these people was both comforting to him and dissonant 
to him? How could the world rejoice when, it, when there was so much pain going on in the midst of such evidence that God was distant and unhearing and uncaring? And from those bells that he heard that morning, a new Christmas song was born. Longfellow wrote the, the hymn that we sang at the end of the service just before a minute ago. <laughs> I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And he wrote that song from this place of pain and darkness and not knowing the future. He wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet. The words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. These bells that we hear repeating over and echoing the songs of Christmas, bringing to mind the melodies of these songs, the words to these songs, these words that speak of peace and joy and love. They spoke of the thrill of hope for a nation that knew no hope. These words and melodies that had rung from the belfries of churches throughout the world for generations. He wrote and thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. These songs that had been sung for so many years by so many people and yet seemed so out of touch with Longfellow's reality in that moment. The nation's reality. A war that had nearly taken the life of his son a war that he hated. And so Longfellow writes these next two verses that we don't often sing, but were so poignant at the time. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. This nation that had been founded generations before by his very ancestors, that had been founded with such hope, that had strived for peace, was being torn apart from the inside. Whatever hope there had been in these words and these songs was drowned by the violence and the division that he saw all around him. Hate had won. He wrote, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He gives us this glimpse into this honest moment where he's standing there going, none of this can be true. Look around you. There is no peace on earth. Hate wins. Death wins. Disease wins. It's true. But then the song of the bell struck more deeply into Longfellow's memory. The bells awakened a deeper recollection that went further. Longfellow would remember an even truer truth, an even realer reality, an even stronger promise. The promise of a God who is faithful. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. These bells, these Christmas bells, ring of a truth that is louder and deeper, louder and deeper than death, louder and deeper than hate. These bells brought Longfellow back to the songs that he had heard and that he had sung and that he had rehearsed all of his life. These bells and the truths that they recalled were able to bring him back to wonder. We're able to anchor him in the truth of who God is and that God would be faithful to do what he said he would do even in the midst of storms. And he ends this carol by saying, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, 
a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. These songs, these words were able to bring him a new perspective in the midst of his despair. God is not dead, even in this, nor doth he sleep. And in the face of these incredible circumstances, Longfellow chooses to believe, and then he acts on belief. Using the gift that he had been given by God, he uses his words to communicate the hope that he was able to experience in this moment of despair, to share that with generations who would come. Despite his relative fame as a poet, and in our culture being a famous poet isn't that big of a deal, most of us probably can't list another Longfellow poem that he wrote. I can't. I mean, I've got a book of Longfellow at home, but I use it to prop up a lamp in my living room, so I look smarter than I am. (laughs) But this poem is probably the best known. It's become his legacy, and it has provided hope for generations for people during this Christmas season. Which is crazy, because why do we need hope at Christmas? It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? I mean, with kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. Has that ever worked? <laughs> like, you're just having a lousy day, and someone's like, be of good cheer, brother. Those kids today, they're like, we wish you a merry we wish. <laughs> there's, something, there's something about Christmas, you know, where, when we gather with friends and family, that just seems to, it seems to amplify the highs and amplify the lows. We experience everything bigger and more. There's something about the season that can be so beautiful and also so painful. It's a season where we gather with friends and family, but those gatherings are often some of the most difficult times in our life. It's almost like Christmas time is like a mirror. It's a bad analogy, but it's almost like a mirror that only reflects back to us the areas in which our life has shortcomings. These gatherings where we go and we see all these other people make it all the realer to us how alone we feel as a single person. Make us realize how empty and shallow and meaningless our marriage is if it isn't one of those Hallmark Channel romance stories that we see. It seems to reflect back to us the ways in which our lives aren't perfect, aren't the way we hoped they would be. And the message we hear is, be of good cheer, put on a happy face, it's Christmas, we've got eggnog. Does anyone like eggnog? (laughs) I I don't think that's what we're doing in this series on wonder. It's certainly not what Longfellow was doing. Longfellow didn't pretend that his son wasn't dying, that his country wasn't being torn apart. In the face of these insurmountable obstacles and truths, Longfellow was drawing on an even greater power, an even greater hope, a great truth that he chose to believe in. The power wasn't in the songs or the bells. Those were simply reminders that helped him to remember the faith that he had. His faith that God was doing something bigger that he couldn't see, but that he could rest in that truth, in that knowledge that God is good, that he could trust the God that those songs celebrated. It's a lot like the stories we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks of the series. These stories of people that experience incredibly difficult seasons of life, and yet somehow in the midst of them, they were able to experience God. They were able to remain faithful. Stories like the story of uh, an elderly Jewish priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who had faithfully served God, a God who had been silent for 400 years and who had appeared to have abandoned his people Israel, first to exile and then to the oppression of Rome, all the while responding to their cries with silence. 
and yet they were faithful. A couple who had known the shame and loneliness of being without kids, barren. An elderly couple about whom people had whispered most of their lives, suggesting that perhaps it was some secret sin that had caused this curse of infertility upon their family. They heard the whispers. A couple who was now too old to hold any hope of children. And yet somehow, they were faithful. Somehow they believed that God was good, that God was doing something. And the miraculous happened. An angel appeared to them and announces that their whole life is going to be turned upside down. Their plans for the future just got rearranged. A baby is going to come, and this baby is going to be a great prophet who would be celebrated for generations and would change the world. John the Baptist. And then the author gives us another story, sort of a contrasting story of a young Jewish peasant girl named Mary who is living in obscurity in this little disreputable town called Nazareth, living in poverty, but who still believed that God was good. A young peasant girl who didn't ask to be involved, who was simply going about her meager life when suddenly an angel appears to her and announces that her whole life is going to be turned upside down. That scandal was going to come. That her plans for the future just got rearranged. That she was going to become pregnant, even though she had never been with a man. And this baby would be a king. This baby would change the world. This baby was the hope of Israel, who would be celebrated for generations. The angel used these words, reading from Luke 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. You have these two stories of these two miraculous pregnancies that in some ways are similar, but in some ways are very very different. Mary, who would have grown up hearing these stories of old, these stories of, of back when there were prophets and back when God did miraculous things, literally centuries before her. These were just as olden days for her as they seem to us now in this moment. But as this angel is using these words, I have to think that these words reminded her, recalled in her memory these stories that she had heard all of her lives of God doing miraculous things and miraculous births. Mary would have probably recognized uh, people like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who was told that she would have a son miraculously, that he would be a father of nations. Women like Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, who was barren, but then who gave birth to Jacob, who later became Israel, and whose sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Women like Hannah, who had suffered grief, years of grief and shame as a woman who couldn't bear children and yet faithfully believed that God was good and that he had a plan that he was working out. And miraculously, God gave her Samuel, who would become one of the greatest prophets that Israel had ever known, a prophet who would find a young shepherd boy named David and make him king. Yeah? (laughs) We can do this together. That's totally fine. (laughs) These words that the angel spoke to her would have recalled in her memory these stories, these great stories. And yet it would have been confusing. It would have been both comforting and disconcerting and and, and dissonant. I mean, all of those women longed to have children. All of those women had begged God for this. All of those women had husbands. And so in this moment, Mary asks, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And I think, you know, that's all it says in the text. So this is speculation. If Chris can do it, I can it doesn't say, but I've got to think in that moment she's asking a question that's more than just biology. 
I think perhaps she's saying, this isn't how it's supposed to work. This isn't the time. This isn't the place. This isn't the way. This isn't what I want. And the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he'll be called the Son of God. Then the angel again references a story that would have sounded very familiar to this young Jewish girl who'd grown up hearing these stories of old to let her know that she wouldn't be alone in this unexpected journey. Starting in verse 36. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. In the face of her circumstances, a pregnancy she didn't ask for, a fiancé who would absolutely know the baby wasn't his, a family who would never believe this crazy story, and a community that might stone her to death for being a teenage girl who was suddenly mysteriously pregnant. In the face of all of that, Mary chooses to believe. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. She chose to believe the old stories. To believe that the same God who had been faithful in the past, the distant past, centuries before, who had performed miracles in the past, centuries before, would still be faithful to her today in that moment, still do the miraculous today. She didn't understand it all, but she chose, in the face of insurmountable truth, that her life was about to come apart. She chose to lean in and believe God's promise. And she acted on that belief. She went immediately to visit her cousin Elizabeth, her relative Elizabeth, who lived 80 miles away. This would have been a three or four-day journey through the wilderness for her to go. And she went, I would assume, perhaps to witness firsthand this thing that the angel had told her about. And to perhaps look for a foreshadowing of what she could expect in her own journey. It simply says that she went and stayed for three months. The text tells it this way. A few days later... Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea in the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you have believed that the Lord would do what he said. Even in the womb, John the Baptist is announcing the coming of the Lord. And even from the womb, Jesus is ushering in the presence of his Holy Spirit. It comes upon Elizabeth. And note what Elizabeth says at the end there. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said Mary chose to believe in that God would do what he said in the very first Christmas song was born. It's called Mary's Magnificat. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, for my spirit rejoices, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He has shown mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. Do you hear that generational language? she's using from generation to generation remembering God's faithfulness Mary could look back at the faithfulness of those previous generations and trust that God's faithfulness God's mercy as it extended from generation to generation will extend to her as well and she sings of her present situation of Israel's present situation 
and oppressed people living in poverty, working for the Roman government, paying taxes, blasphemous taxes to Caesar, the emperor who called himself God. This, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He's helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his children forever. God has remembered to be faithful. For he made this promise and he remembered to keep it. Do you remember last week, Chris talked about this idea of a theology of remembering. And it's based on a God who remembers his promises. And who desires that his people would remember his promises. Remember from generation to generation the faithfulness that he has demonstrated. And then the author, Luke, goes on to tell the story of the birth of John. And it's a story that's full of wonderful gatherings. Zachariah and Elizabeth are in their hometown, surrounded by friends and family who are celebrating with them and have walked alongside of them through this journey, but who were probably the same people who had whispered about them all the time before this. Wonderful gatherings can still be kind of complicated gatherings. We bring all of our history, good and bad, into them. Next verse. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. The miracle baby has finally come. It's complete, and now everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zachariah after his father, but Elizabeth said no. I'm glad that we've not adopted this circumcision ceremony part of our religious practices, I'm just saying. It says they all came for the ceremony, though. Who's they all? It's, it's everyone. It's their friends. It's the community. It's the friends and neighbors. They are surrounded by love, and it turns into a beautiful, wonderful gathering, a party, and Zachariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, bursts into song, and it, it, the whole thing ends with a dance number. It's amazing. And then chapter 1 ends. And then without any real transition at all, the author tells the story of another birth. And again, it's similar and yet very, very different. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, words that we've heard all of our lives, many of us. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This is the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census. So he goes from telling us all about this amazing family gathering and miracles to a civics lesson on who was the governor at the time and that there was this decree that there be a census. That's strange, right? I mean, we've heard these words so many times that it sounds normal, but why would God choose to set up the story with the backdrop of his arriving on earth with some lessons about who is governor of what? Well, I think in part, the author's reminding us here that Rome is still very much in power. The enemy is not yet defeated. Caesar is on his throne. It's interesting perhaps to note, I thought it was interesting, that Caesar Augustus is actually Rome's first emperor. Before Augustus, Rome had been ruled by a senate. But that senate had given Augustus absolute power in the world. This was the most powerful man in history. He ushered in an era of peace by violently crushing all resistance. And so the author is reminding us that that 
that emperor, the first emperor, is still on his throne. He's demanding the census so that their taxes can be increased. It's the very issues to which Mary had spoken in her song of princes and the rich and the poor and the hungry. It's still very much a reality in their lives. Strange that God would choose to frame the story of his arrival to set the stage with the background of this blasphemous Roman tax. Verse 4, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. Joseph was forced to make the 90-mile journey between these two little cities to this little place, this little hamlet called Bethlehem, and to do it through a four-day journey through the wilderness with this young girl who was nine months pregnant, days from delivery. It's a very different setting for the birth story that then happens. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there's no lodging available for them. Mary and Joseph are now in this strange city, days away from home, days away from relatives, from their parents. They're now surrounded by friends and neighbors who have been or they are not surrounded by friends and neighbors who have been a part of this journey with them. Instead, they haven't been able to find lodging anywhere, and so they are somehow in this shelter where there are animals and they're surrounded by filth and feed. There is no welcome. There is no party. There is no celebration, no dance number. Just exhausted silence. Silent night was probably not how Mary had always envisioned the birth of her first child. I'm sure she had her whole life imagined being with her mother, being with her aunts and cousins, being surrounded by family who would celebrate with her, who would argue over who got to hold the child first. She may have even thought back longingly to that celebration that she had just been at a couple months ago when Elizabeth's child was born, and she saw her surrounded by her own relatives. She had been one of them. But now, here, instead, she's with Joseph, this man who's not even really her husband yet, this man that she doesn't even really know yet because it was an arranged marriage. And the only guests that come are a bunch of ragtag strangers, shepherds, society's outcasts who are dirty and smelly. This could not have felt like the faithfulness of God to Mary in that moment. This couldn't have felt like the fulfillment of the promise that she had received from an angel. He had said that this would be, the child would be great, that he would be the son of the Most High, that he would be a king on David's throne, that his kingdom would never end. And this must have felt like a kingdom that never even got started. And yet in that moment, she believes. How was she able to maintain her faith, her faithfulness to God and what had to have seemed so far from being blessed? Perhaps Elizabeth's words, you are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do that, do what he said. Maybe those words were still playing in her mind, but those were many months ago, many miles ago, and many whispers ago. What sustained this young girl in the midst of these incredible challenges and trials? I think perhaps it sounds simplistic to us, to our ears. It sounds churchy, but I think perhaps it was faith. Faith that went beyond her ability to have faith. Faith that allowed her to see her present in the light of God's consistent activity throughout time and history from generation to generation. A faith that had been modeled to her, taught to her, told through the stories of old so that she had that seed of faith in her mind, in her heart. 
a memory that was recalled when the angel spoke to her using these words that harkened back to those old stories. But I think it was also more than that. I think this is a faith that goes beyond training, that goes beyond what we can give to our children. This is a faith that comes only from God, as a gift from God. Her faith came from God in this moment that had to feel so vulnerable and so scary and so low for Mary. I think often it's when we're at our lowest, when we, when there seems to be no hope, that we are most open to hearing God, to hear his still small promise that he is still faithful. One commentary put it like this. Often it is those in need who are the most spiritually sensitive to God and who are gifted with faith by him. It's interesting. If you do any research on Longfellow, and I know some of you might Google him this afternoon. If you look at his life, he really wasn't much of a church guy most of his life. He grew up kind of nominally Unitarian, didn't, have a, didn't see a whole lot of need for this talk about salvation and redemption and sin and the cross and all of that. But he was a seeker. He spent his life exploring faith and looking at Christianity and what it meant. And it was in this moment, this time of darkest sorrow, of greatest need, where he was most spiritually sensitive to God. Or perhaps on that cold Christmas morning in 1863, Longfellow had an encounter with God. Perhaps in the stillness, he was able to hear God whisper, I'm not dead. I'm not sleeping. I'm not silent. I'm here with you. I am in the midst of your pain. I, too, grieve the brokenness of your world. I, too, grieve the injustice and the war. I grieved with you each time you lost someone that you loved. I was the first to grieve. But death doesn't win. Hate doesn't win. I do. And I'm with you. And here in this Bethlehem story, we see Jesus, God's promise that I am with you. And that promise actually takes on flesh and blood. He took on flesh to fulfill the promise for generations before. He came not in the temple of Zechariah, not in the throne room of Caesar, but in the most meager and simple and everyday commonplace to everyday, meager, simple people. And I think one of the reasons that God chose to come to earth with such a strange backdrop, to take on flesh in such a humble, lowly, meager, broken way, such a strange and unexpected way, was to show us generations later that God still desires to meet us that way in our everyday broken life experiences in our everyday common highs and lows. The rest of the book of Luke then, the author tells story after story of Jesus eating with and living with and demonstrating his heart for everyday normal people that Jesus encountered in those places of brokenness, ministering to the poor and to the oppressed and to the sick, to the sinners and prostitutes, to the tax collectors and zealots, to those who grieve the loss of their children, who grieve the loss of their mothers, who grieved their sickness and longed for hope. And Jesus meets them in that place, people who are in their moments of greatest needs, which for them, and I think for us, are the moments that can be the most spiritually sensitive to God, the, most, the moments where you're most able to hear the voice of God saying, I'm not dead, I'm with you. I got you. The next couple of weeks, as we as a nation come into the, as, as a world, come into the last home stretch here to the Christmas season. This Christmas season, which can serve in so many ways as a mirror to us. 
Many of us are going to face these moments. And even if we don't, we are gathering with people who are. We are gathering with people who will be. I was struck after the first service how many people came up to me and said, I hate this time of year. My dad died this time, four years ago. My mom, my, you know, one guy said last night, one of his very good friends passed away. Like, why does it have to happen now? When we gather during these, these times, these gatherings can be so wonderful, but they can also be so hard. As we go to work parties and family gatherings, the stress of buying gifts and making food and trying not to talk politics with your dad because that never ends well, ever. <laughs> or maybe this is the first Christmas where you're not going to a work Christmas party because you're out of work. And you didn't see it coming and you don't know what the future holds, but it doesn't look great. And so when you're hearing about all these other people who are going to their work Christmas parties, it's just a reminder that life isn't the way you thought it would be. Maybe you're not going to family gatherings this year, not because you don't want to, but because your family has been fractured by disease or by death or by divorce. Maybe this is the first Christmas where dad doesn't live with us anymore. And it's going to be hard. Maybe this is the first Christmas without your mom. Or maybe this is just another Christmas where you'll find that you're alone And maybe Christmas just feels like another reminder that you missed that person that was taken too young. I don't know what those moments are going to be for you this year, but many of us will have them, and all of us will experience others who are having them. How do we go into those moments and thrive and do well? If you came this morning and thought I was going to give you like six tips for beating Christmas, sorry. This isn't easy, and these things aren't easy. And the people in your lives, if you're not experiencing them, they are. And it's hard, and telling them to be of good cheer doesn't cut it. No matter how hard you wish them a Merry Christmas. (laughs) How do we do this well? It may sound simplistic, but I think the answer is faith. A faith that goes beyond be of good cheer, that goes beyond trying to white-knuckle it. A faith that doesn't pretend it's not hard. But a faith that allows us to see our present reality in the light of God's constant activity, consistent activity throughout time and history from generation to generation. A faith that recognizes that these moments of greatest need are often the moments where we and those around us are able to see and experience and meet God, maybe in new and profound ways that shape the rest of our lives like it did for Longfellow. A faith that chooses to believe those old stories that seem so ancient when there were prophets and when God did things that were miraculous. To believe that the same God who did those things, who had been faithful in that distant past, is faithful today and is still doing miracles today. A faith that draws on generation after generation after generation of people who've gone before us and in their moments of darkness testified that they experienced God in profound and wonder-filled ways. Allow those voices of the past to speak into your present reality. A faith that we rehearse and repeat when we come together like this and we gather and we sing these songs of old so that when we hear the the bells on Christmas Day, we can recollect, recollect. When you mispronounce it when you're reading it, it's one thing, but that was out of my mind. So that we can recollect these words, these truths, These promises that God is who these songs say he is, that God is faithful, these truest truths that God cares, that God is with us, that God is for us. A faith 
that we can ask God to give us because we know we can't do it on our own. A faith that repeats these songs and these stories of old until they become what Longfellow ends his song by calling a chant sublime. It's beautiful, but what is a chant sublime? Here's what one author says. A chant sublime is a phrase of truth that carries eternal weight and power. No matter how long ago it was written, no matter how often it's said, it still has juice on it. It's an unbroken song that anchors us to God though we are tossed about by storms. And the carols are bursting with chant sublime. I love Christmas carols. I love being at a church that sings Christmas carols. I know they're not for everybody, but there's so much truth in these old texts. I would invite you this week, as we are preparing to go into this next season, which is going to be wonderful and probably complicated and sometimes hard, this week, press pause. Literally put a date on your calendar if you need to. Or you can take an hour and just read through some of these old hymns. Read O Holy Night. It's one of my favorite, and the text is so rich. Read that now so that when we gather next Sunday night and we sing that, you can declare those truths knowing exactly what you're speaking. When we go into these gatherings, it can be so wonderful and so complicated and hard. Or as you long and wish to go to gatherings that aren't happening this year, know that like Mary, you are not alone. This can be a tremendous community for you, a community that loves you. But so much more importantly than that, God is present with you and he celebrates and he grieves with you. He loves you. He's for you. May that be your reality this Christmas, a reality that you not only experience, but that you share as you are going into these gatherings and that you're able to share for generations to come. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories, these stories that for many of us are so familiar that they just become rote. God, we thank you for the marvel and the wonder that is in them, for the love that you express by taking on flesh in such a common and lowly and meager and everyday way, and that you still meet us in those places. You still seek us out in those places. God, thank you for the generations that have proclaimed your faithfulness, the ways in which they have experienced you in their darkest hours. And they could come to us and say, God is faithful. God is true. God, be making us into that generation so that we can proclaim to the kids who sang today and to generations beyond your great faithfulness, your unfailing character, your tremendous love. God, as we go into these seasons, into these parties, into these gatherings that can be so difficult, God, I pray that we would experience you in some new and profound and wonder-filled way that we might bring that experience to the party, that people might see you in us this Christmas. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen.